would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. And follow with me as I read. I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to drop down to verse 7. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This morning we come to our fifth in a series of the blessings, known by the Latin name for blessed, the Beatitudes. And again, I want to emphasize that this is not a randomly arranged statement, but it is one that is highly structured. And again, a lot of times we are not aware of just how much went into the production of our Bibles as the Holy Spirit guided uh, the hands of the, the, the minds and the hearts and the hands of the writers uh, to write in ways that are compelling. Um, and so often as we study it, we see aspects to the structure that is just every time we go over it, more and more gets unfolded for us. Not that we're putting things in. We're just seeing what's there. We're just coming to an awareness and of an acknowledgement of, of exactly what is there. Uh, I spent a lot of time last Lord's Day in our adult Sunday school class uh, telling you why I thought uh, this is what literary scholars call a chiasmus. Now, I'm not going to burden you with that again this morning. You don't have to have a degree in literature to get what I think is here in this passage. Uh, Jesus presents this to us moving from three things that come to a central point. And that central point is righteousness. Of the absolute need to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is the essence of spiritual life. You don't have life without righteousness. Because God is a God of righteousness who loves righteousness and requires righteousness and provides righteousness and leads us in paths of righteousness. Righteousness is so central. And so we have to have righteousness, but the things that lead to a desire for it, a hungering and thirsting for it, is coming to grips with that those first three things that really empty us of any hope in ourselves. It takes away all self-confidence, all self-pride, all self-will, as we're brought to see that we are poor and beggars, and we have no, not the, the, the requisite things that are needful for life. We need it from God and God alone. We have nothing to give and everything we need. And then we come to see ourselves in a world that's fallen and sinful, and we're brought to mourn. We're brought to look upon the plight of the world, not with a self-centered desire to say, well, this is my opportunity to exploit all the perils of a sinful world for my own benefit. No. We want to heal the grief and, 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 and pain and the, the, the abominations that exist in all of the world around us. We mourn the plight of the world. And then with respect to the world, we also um, are not concerned to face the world with an ill will, with a meekness that actually um, takes much from the world that they throw at us. And we don't respond with harshness and we don't look for vengeance. 
we bow to the will of our God in all things and we don't show forth evil for evil towards those who would provoke us because meekness is what deals with the question of ill will within our hearts. And so all of that empties us. It brings us the hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then we have three things that follow. And these, strings that fo- these three things that follow are the things that are the fruits of righteousness. Come to, coming to hunger and thirst for righteousness. What exactly does righteousness look like? Well, there are three things that Jesus says will characterize righteousness. And that's mercy. And that's purity. And that's peaceableness. Those three things. Now, again, it's not so much... Uh, an extensive statement of everything that could be said upon this subject, but I rather think there are things that correspond to that first part. Again, that's what a chiasmus does. It leads from the, the, uh, the first three things to the central thing, and then it leads from that to these other things that go back and correspond to what Jesus had already said. And it does it in this way. that we, Jesus begins with poverty, and he ends at the other end of the picture with peace. And peace in a Hebrew sense is not just cessation of conflict. It's the present of abundance. And so when you think of abundance on the one hand, from poverty on the other hand, what happens? We go from poverty to abundance. These Beatitudes tell us how happiness comes to the life of the godly and that God takes people from poverty to abundance. And then the second thing corresponds to the sixth thing. What do you have there? Well, you have people that mourn the plight of of a fallen world. And on the other end, there's the purity that in essence means something that is without mixture. It's not mixed up with other stuff. There's a singleness of motive and intent and purity in that sense speaks of not so much moral purity although that's there but it's the purity of intention it's the sincerity of desire to live with one heart united in the pursuit of the service of God and others in his name and so you move from mourning the plight of the world to actually doing something about the plight of the world as a servant to the world and to our God in the world for the good of the world And then we're moving from the third thing, which is meekness, the absence of ill will, to the presence of goodwill. That's what mercy does. Mercy brings us to goodwill, to express goodwill. So in that sense, what we're doing is we're moving from inward things to outward things. We're moving from passive things to active things. We're moving from mostly negative things you might think to positive things how we, fo- how we serve the world uh, uh, for God's glory um, as those who are blessed with these blessings and have so much to offer the world that's why Jesus can move from this to say you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world because these things have their active input into the world as God's people live out the Beatitudes as we live out a life of righteousness showing forth the reality of mercy, of purity, and of peaceableness. So that's something of the inner relationships. It teaches a sermon, doesn't it? It really does. Uh, Again, Jesus didn't just put these things together in an arbitrary way, and Matthew's not presenting them to us just in a a haphazard way. Um, uh, They stand and fall together. You can't take one of these things out and uh, not lose the whole of it. These are all true of the righteous, and they're all needed by the righteous. 
Well, this morning we have this fifth beatitude to look at, where Jesus speaks of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What we want to do with this statement of the blessedness of mercy is first of all define what mercy is. And then we want to look at some displays of mercy that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. And then finally, we're going to look at some of the demands that mercy would lay upon us as the people of God. So first of all, let's begin with just a basic definition. What is this mercy that is to be uh, definitional of the people of God, part of our, our, our righteousness? Well, well, the Greek word, aleo, is a word that means compassion. It, it, it means pity. And um, it's a form of the word is used even in chapter 6 where Jesus says, Let, uh, Do not your righteousness before men to be seen of them. And then he says, um, When you give to the needy. Now that's a form of mercy. That's The very word itself is a form of the word for mercy. When you give to the needy, you're exercising mercy. You're looking at somebody that has need and you have something to give and you give to the needy. Because you see, it's compassion that is connected to an action that relieves the need. So we behold need, we respond with compassion, and we join our compassion with an action that actually relieves the need that's there. Jesus confronts many in the Gospels who cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. In one of the accounts of Bartimaeus, I think it's at Luke's Gospel, it says Jesus stood still. Jesus stood still. I mean, Jesus was about his labors actively, energetically, doing the typical day's work that he did in preaching, teaching, healing, and all the rest. And suddenly out of the crowd, he hears a word of the man that says, Have mercy on me! And that very cry for mercy stops the Son of God in his tracks. He says, there's a need. There's a need. Somebody is crying out for mercy. And then Jesus, of course, asks, what would you have me to do that I might see? And Jesus heals him. He acts to relieve the need that gave forth the cry for mercy. So you have the cry of distress. You have the cry of the poor. You have the cry of the needy. Asking for compassion. Compassion mixed with action. Now, it's possible. When you think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember a man that has need. He's taken by robbers. He's left for dead. And in Luke chapter 10, this parable of the Good Samaritan, tells us that before the Samaritan got to the scene, there were two other people that saw the man. First, there was a priest who by chance was going down that road and he saw him. Now, we're not told what he thought. We're not told about what happened in his inner life. Maybe he looked and he saw and he said, oh man, that's too terrible. That's, that's just terrible. Well, what, a, what a poor poor man. Look what happened to him. And maybe there was even a prayer that was uttered. Maybe there was a heart that was in some way moved by the things that he saw. I'm not going to say this priest necessarily. That was a parable. But just 
do have a little imagination. I'm sure that this priest wasn't completely hard-hearted about that needy man. But still, he's a priest, and he couldn't risk the possibility that he was dead, and he couldn't risk the possibility that would make him ceremonially unclean, and so he passed him by on the other side. Now, whatever feelings he had, whatever kindness he felt, whatever compassion seized his soul at that time, whatever prayer that he prayed, although it's not bad to pray for the needy, but the fact that he didn't stop and do something means that man did not have mercy. Mercy stops. Mercy addresses the need. Likewise, the Levite came to the same place, passed by on the other side. It doesn't matter what you feel. It's a matter does those feelings drive you to do something, drive you to take some form of action. Now maybe praying. That's not that's not immaterial. God's people pray, and God hears our prayers. But does it drive us to pray? Does it drive us to give comfort and aid and help when we can? Again, it's not according. It's not required of us according to what we don't have, but what we do have. I mean, the needs of the world are immense. And the point is, you can't do everything, but you all can do something. And we're called not to grow weary in our well-doing, but in knowing that in due season we will reap if we faint not. We're to be a people that abound in mercy. That's that Samaritan, that's the model for it. And so Jesus said, Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. Mercy's demonstrated. Mercy's seen. Mercy involves what you do to relieve the distress, to show forth compassion. Now, Scripture portrays mercy as something that is found in God. He's in fact the standard of mercy. Again, the name that he proclaims to Moses from Mount Sinai. Merciful and gracious. So to anger. Abundant in loving kindness and truth. When we read the epistles, Paul's later prison epistles, include mercy as one of the cardinal blessings that God bestows upon his people. Most of the early church letters say grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But the later ones say, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Mercy is an essential aspect of Christian experience. Mercy is an essential reality that meets us in salvation. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were, you were bound in your sins. You were doomed to die in your sins. But God, who is rich in mercy... For the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. God beheld us in our need. He beheld us with our burdens. He saw us in our death. He saw us in our bondage. He saw us unable to do anything to relieve ourselves. And God took action, rich in mercy, for the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. God showed mercy upon Israel in bondage to Pharaoh. He looked upon their burdens. He heard their cries. He saw their misery. And he didn't just feel bad for them. <laughs> Scripture tells us he knew. He knew. He knew their sufferings. And that knowledge of his su- their sufferings led him to take action. He went down to Egypt with a high hand and a mighty arm and delivered them from their, su- their, from their, from their captivity. 
pitied them and took them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. Paul could speak in Titus when the goodness and kindness of our of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we ourselves have done, but according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He saw us in our ugliness, in our deformity, in our the depths of our depravity. He could have hated us for it. He could have loathed us for it. He could have rejected us and been the ever-blessed, ever-glorious, ever-just God. And yet He's merciful. He mercied us. He pitied us and acted for our salvation. Well, that's what mercy is. Mercy is what mercy does. How mercy acts. And there's a couple of notable displays in Matthew's Gospel of this mercy. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, interestingly enough, there are more references to mercy than in all the other Gospels combined. Matthew seems to take a great interest in this matter of mercy. It may be because he's so immersed in the Old Testament Scriptures. How often he says... Uh, he quotes the Old Testament scriptures this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying he's always going back to the Old Testament scriptures and the major scripture that he goes to in his gospel speaking of mercy we read it in the scripture reading is found in Matthew chapter 9 where Hosea 6.6 is quoted you remember the situation Jesus had called Matthew the tax collector to himself and Matthew left his custom booth and went to follow Jesus and then he met in Matthew's house and Jesus was at table with Matthew and a bunch of other tax collectors I'd imagine that knew Matthew and Jesus is there and he's there with them eating a meal with tax collectors and others who are just simply defined as sinners simply defined as sinners and there's a group of Pharisees they're the pure ones those are the ones that think they're specially consecrated to God and they know the law of God backward and forward they look at Jesus and say as uh, Levi said in Luke's gospel what kind of a prophet is this does he not know what manner of people they are and if he knew what manner of people they are he wouldn't go near them he'd stay away from them they say to his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners Jesus responds in terms of it's the sick that have a need of a, of a physician but then he tells them go learn what this means go learn what this means I desire mercy rather than sacrifice and that's found in Hosea chapter 6 turn to Hosea if you will Hosea is the first of the we call them the minor prophets in the synagogue it's called the book of the twelve it's one big book, the book of the twelve. And the first book of the book of the twelve is Hosea. In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, God says, For I desire, and the rendering of the ESV is steadfast love. Steadfast love. It's a very interesting Hebrew word that sometimes maybe you've heard preachers talk about it. Chesed. See, you haven't heard preachers say it rightly till now. 
They usually say chesed or something like that, but it's not. It's chesed. It's a strong vowel. Chesed with the guttural. And that word chesed, it's sometimes translated in the Old King James as loving kindness, but it's really much stronger than that. It's the kind of love that goes the distance, that will never give up. We sing that hymn, Love that will not let me go. That's what chesed is. It's the love that goes the distance, that will never let you go, that will always be faithful, that in the midst of all the provocations is undying and never-ending. That's God's love. It's God's committed covenant love. It's kind of love you pledge to your partner when you stood at a marriage ceremony and said, till death do us part. God's love is for the distance. And yet it's that word, chesed, that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew is the word that Matthew uses for mercy. It's mercy. The writers to the Septuagint knew that mercy was part of the divine character along with chesed in Exodus 34 and verse 9. And they probably thought that it was the very aspect of the character of God that people needed to know because Isaiah and the other prophets lived in the midst of a culture in which mercy was not very often found. It was a mercy-deprived culture, and in the place of mercy was cruelty. No compassion or little compassion, and cruelty seemed to abound. In the fourth chapter, where Hosea's words of prophecy, his sermons really begin, the rest of the first three chapters are about Gomer and his relationship with her. But here in chapter 4, we have the first of the real prophetic words that came from Hosea here the word of Yahweh O children of Israel for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land there is no faithfulness or steadfast love there's no mercy no knowledge of God in the land and in the place what do you find swearing lying murder stealing committing adultery the breaking of all bounds, bloodshed follows bloodshed. That's a very typical picture of what the prophets saw in the life of Israel of old. The people just were out for themselves, only concerned with their own benefits, and they looked upon the misery of their neighbors and they simply didn't care. You know, was, you know, Jer- Jeremiah speaks, they sit in ambush against you, they're plotting all the time. To get what they want. Then they speak with fair words, but they're out for blood. And then you know what they do? They go up to the temple. They bring their offerings. Hey, we're okay. We're good. I mean, that's God's temple. We're God's people. We're God's covenant. It belongs to us. So we bring the sacrifices and everything's okay. They go to church on Sunday. You give God what He wants. And then you go off from your own way to do what you want. That's not a modern philosophy, folks. That's an ancient philosophy. Go to the temple of God to meet with God, to give Him the offerings He requires, and then you leave Him there, and you go your way, and do your thing. And the prophets are insistent that'll never do. God does not require sacrifice when mercy is absent. And so God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 
Mercy, knowledge of God, knowledge of the God of mercy, knowledge of the God of committed love, is what's to inform the life of the Israelite so that he might live as God himself demonstrates steadfast love to his people, that we would show steadfast love to one another. We would imitate that love. See, these are aspects of the divine character that are imitative because we're made in His image, we're made in His likeness, we're made to show forth God's own character in lives that reflect Him, that are accurate representations of who God is. That's what it means to be His image, to be an accurate representation of God. I pity my son. People walk around and say, I know who your dad is. He, he looks altogether too much like me. Not just that he looks like me. He has all my facial expressions. <laughs> poor guy. Poor kid. That's what I cursed him with. But you see, from day one, what's happening? I'm looking at the kid, little baby in my arm and saying, Goo-goo gaga, goo-goo gaga. And he goes, Goo-goo gaga. He goes back at me. Why? We're imitative creatures. <laughs> That's what we do. We, we see things and we mimic. We've got to be careful who we, who we mimic. But you see, we're called to mimic God. We're called to imitate God. We're called to see what God does and to do likewise. And as God demonstrates that He is a merciful God, to demonstrate mercy in the totality of life and not to think that can be dispensed and sacrifice will take its place. It won't. It won't. God will say to you, as he said to the Israelites in Isaiah's day, who has required this at your hand? Who has required this? No, it's not God saying, I never required sacrifice. He's saying, I never required it this way. I never required that you bring the solemn assembly along with the total abandonment to injustice and oppression and violence and bloodshed and all the other things that characterize the life of the nation given over to self-interest and self-centeredness. It's a, it's a culture of cruelty. And let me, let me just say that in, in, in most cultures that haven't been impacted by the Christian gospel, that's what you end up finding. You find cultures of cruelty. The most appalling things that are done. Where Christianity was abandoned, what takes its place? The gas chambers of Germany. What takes its place? prisons of Siberia. The most appalling things are done under heaven where a land once saturated with the gospel no longer has the gospel. Evil takes, comes in as a flood when the Lord doesn't raise up a standard against it. Evil just comes in like a flood. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy. Mercy is at the heart of what the Israelite was called to exhibit and should be at the heart of what Christians are called to display, to be a people who abound in mercy. Well, did they learn the lesson? Did they go and learn what it means? Well, well no. And it wasn't just they were self-righteous looking down their noses at other people and saying, you know, they're the pure scum of the earth and we're the, we're the, we're the great treasures of the earth, which, of course, they did. But it's more than that. Because you see, where a culture of cruelty takes, it, takes place, it, it may begin with the outcasts. 
It may begin with the tax collectors and the sinners, but it's not going to end there. It's not going to end there. And so the same people that were hating on tax collectors and sinners, what happens? Well, you start to hate on Jesus and his disciples. And these aren't tax collectors and sinners. These are like, you know, teachers of the law. These are people that are looking to talk about the God of Israel. And yet they start to hate on them. And you see it in chapter 12 in particular. Remember, Jesus said to these people, Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And yet, at that time, chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 1, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, imagine for a minute they had gone and learned what this means, what this meant. Imagine for a minute they would actually taken seriously the call. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What would they have seen when they looked at this? Well, they would have probably said, hey, what a great nation we live in. (laughs) What a great God we have. What great laws we have. Why? Because Jesus going through the grain fields with his disciples, hungry, and plucking heads of grain was not theft. It wasn't trespassing. In our culture, I guess you know John would have every right to put on signs on the, the cornfield here and say, no trespassing. Now, I think this is all stuff for the cows, but it used to be silver queen corn that would grow over here. And it was great. And the wonderful thing was that Henry would have mercy upon me and he'd say, yeah, go take what you want. Go take what you want. But in, in, in ancient Israel, you didn't even need an invitation. You know why? Because God had already said, this is my land, not yours. And I'll tell you how to use even the agricultural produce of my land. And what you're to do is you're to leave the corners of the field and all the gleanings, all the stuff that falls from the, from the stalks to the ground. And that's for the poor. That's for the widows. That's for the orphans. That's for the strangers. That's for the hungry. What a law. What a God. What a country. Is that what they saw? No. No. They say, well, hungry people getting fed on the largest that the living God gives them. No. Wrong day. Wrong day. You go hungry till tomorrow. And of course, Jesus responds. And David, when he was hungry, those who were with him went into the priest and entered the house of God and, and ate the bread of the presence, the showbread, that which was placed upon the table of the presence, that which was to represent the nation of Israel. The twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes dwelling in the presence of the light of the candlestick. That's what that was. And now you've taken that whole imagery that God ordained and you're messing it up. But you've taken the bread off of the table and you've given it to hungry people. And the high priest knew God wasn't upset at that. And David knew God was not upset at that.
then Jesus also says, have you not read in the law that, that the priests in the temple, they profane the Sabbath. What are they doing in the temple? Well, not only are they sacrificing the animals, I mean, they're doing the job of a butcher boss, draining blood and lifting up beasts and taking knives, doing all this stuff. Which you would say is labor. That's hard labor. I don't want to do that. I'm glad all I have to do is preach. I don't have to do the work of a butcher and a chef <laughs> preaching the word of God. That's just hard labor. That's why the priests had to retire at 50. They probably weren't strong enough to continue to do that. And yet Jesus says they're doing that up in the temple even now. And God says not only are they just not to stop doing it, but they're actually to do double the sacrifices on the, on the, on the Sabbath day. Then Jesus says something else. Says, I tell you, there's something greater than the temple is here. If you knew who you were talking to, if you knew who I am, I am the temple. When you think of the temple as the place of the presence of God, well, think of me as who I am. As the very place of divine presence. As the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. As the one who is the eternal word made flesh who dwells among us. You're in the presence of Israel's God. But if you had known what this means, they didn't learn it. They didn't learn it. He repeats it again, verse 7. If you had known what this means, I sent you to school and you didn't learn the lessons. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. You would not have allowed your hostility towards tax collectors and and, and sinners to, to extend to the next group and then the next group and the next group and the next group and pretty soon everybody is open season for exploitation because you're living in a culture of cruelty that says you and yours are the only ones that matter and nobody else you have to really worry about and you can be religious and do all that like the chapter 23, he says, Woe to the scribes and Pharisees and the hypocrites. What do they do? Well, they tithe down to the smallest herb, mint, anise, and cumin, and they overlook the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy. Mercy is the second one of those things. They overlook mercy. Mercy is on full display. And Jesus called to learn it. So that you learn how to treat sinners. You learn how to love those who the culture not loving. But you as a Christian, you show compassion. You show the heart and mind of God. Jesus goes on to teach we're to love our enemies. He says, you know, the Gentiles love their friends. Everyone knows how to do that. But be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect because He causes His sun to shine upon the just and the unjust, His rain to fall upon the good and the evil. It's interesting, Luke's Gospel takes that very idea and instead of saying be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, it says be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Mercy needs to characterize us as the people of God. Matthew gives us the tools to do it. He gives us these displays of Jesus' mercy. 
towards tax collectors and sinners, towards hungry disciples, towards the reality that we're not just to be wishing them well and sending them off. We're to look to get our hands dirty and get involved to make provision for those that have need. Mercy's radical, folks. Our time is gone. I don't have to get time really to get to the other matters of mercy's demands. But I will say this: it's radical. We live in a world that does cruelty real well. Doesn't show mercy, except when something like Maui takes place, and then there's compassion and kindness that is is on full display, and then people just go back and forget, and that's gone. Because they've done their merciful thing for a moment. But, but God's people are concerned to respond to the reality of a fallen world. Again, not just with the negative aspect of you just don't be ill will towards evildoers, but you actually show mercy towards evildoers, even your enemies. That's a much higher ethic. And it's much in need of only the grace of God that can enable us to treat sinners like God treats sinners. He doesn't send lightning bolts out of heaven to destroy them. And he doesn't treat them with contempt. He treats them with dignity. And we need to learn to treat our enemies, our neighbors, our work associates, the people God brings upon our path, not with contempt, but with mercy. I served in the military under a chaplain who was in a lot of ways a very exemplary Christian, except in one. He hated the troops he was called to minister to. He looked at their lives and he said, man, I'll never do that. I'll never go down that road. And in a real sense, he was like the Pharisee that Jesus speaks about, who patted himself on the back and said, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. He never had the awareness. He was made of the same stuff, capable of doing the same thing. He would say, but by the grace of God, I wouldn't do that. That would be right. But just to say, I made a bit better stuff. And then to hold those people in contempt, instead of looking upon them with a pitying eye. Jesus, again, is our example for this. Go down in chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel. Don't have time to look at it. Jesus looks upon the multitude, the crowd, great crowd. Matthew tells us he saw them with compassion, with compassion. He told his disciples to pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest field. Jesus saw opportunity to minister to those people, to minister the gospel to those people, to bring them into his kingdom. Because again, what what is his kingdom comprised of? Preble sinners who his mercy has met and his mercy has transformed. There's no one else in the kingdom of God but reformed sinners. I mean, really still sinners, but regenerate sinners, justified sinners, saved sinners, sanctified sinners, sinners filled with the Holy Spirit. Sinners in whom the grace of God has made a difference because God is a God of mercy. Let's 
Let's live in mercy. Let's treat others with mercy. Because again, it's only the merciful that will be shown mercy. Because it's only the merciful who have tasted of mercy. It says, we've come to taste the mercy of God in Christ. We learn to be imitative, to, to be merciful to others. And being merciful to others, God will crown His work of grace in us by the mercy He will show us at that final day when instead of doing what justice would have demanded, saying, depart from me, ye cursed, He says, come ye blessed, come ye blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the time we can spend in these Beatitudes. They're much richer and go far far beyond anything that we can properly speak of or have words to fully express. I pray that in some fashion, these things we've said this morning would be used of you to encourage, to bless um, your people, and to move us into, into realms of, of, the, of a fuller display of mercy than we've ever known before. That we would reflect your your beauty and your glory and your goodness in the way that we approach and relate to a fallen world as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.